Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. Um, Anyway, let's continue now in the book of Daniel where we're at in chapter 9 of Daniel. And um, we're going to look at Daniel's 70 weeks. And here's what the outset, the kind of the overall picture is of what we're going to be discussing. And this is the principle I want you to work on. And we're going to talk about this in the application. The principle is this. The good cannot begin until the bad ends. Okay? We're going to work with that principle. Because here's what Daniel's going to say. In order to have the kingdom that Christ will rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years, you must get rid of sin and trespasses and evil and wickedness from this world because the two are not compatible. So what this really smacks into right now in Christianity is what we call the New Apostolic Reformation theology, dominionism, and kingdom now theology, okay? Promoted primarily through Bethel Redding. And unfortunately, there's a lot of churches believing this, that they, through their social gospel, can usher in the kingdom, and then Jesus will return. It's insane. It's the most arrogant position you could possibly take as a Christian to think you and I have the ability to eradicate evil, eradicate wickedness, eradicate um, transgressions, and we're going to be responsible for ushering in the kingdom. That is the most arrogant position, but yet a lot of Christians believe it. Now, let me show you where the trap is. At the same time in our culture, we have a Marxist takeover that's happening. And Marxism is taking over through social justice means, right? That's their big thing. We're going to eliminate poverty, and we're going to eliminate disease. We're going to eliminate all this other stuff, all the ills of society, racism, injustice, yada, 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 all the, the tropes that they put out in their wokeism, right? We know they're all lies and stupidity. Okay. On this side in Christianity, we are being undermined by other theologies of this kingdom now, New Apostolic Reformation, dominionism, because these Christians believe they're ushering in the kingdom. Therefore, they're now practicing the social gospel in order to achieve that means, or through that means to achieve that end. So what, guess what happens? They start trying to eliminate poverty. They start trying to eliminate racism. They start trying to eliminate all these social ills of society. What did Jesus say about the poor? The poor you will always have with you. You're not going to eliminate that. The po- poverty gets eliminated in the kingdom. Okay? Racism gets ended in the kingdom. I'm not saying we don't fight to, to, against racism. I'm saying if you think you're going to solve the problem through affirmative action, you're wrong. That's not how you solve racism. It's a sin issue, not a social issue. It's because people are sinful, okay? So again, so what ends up happening, it puts these Christians on a collision course to Marxist social, social justice and social gospel end up meeting in the same place And that's why you're now seeing Marxism being practiced in the churches under the guise of social gospel, but really what it is is social justice. 
So these churches are out doing philanthropy and all these goodisms, thinking they're going to usher in the kingdom. Furthermore, one more point about this. This deadly heresy that's happening right now, what emanates from this heresy is they truly believe they're going to Christianize the world and they're going to take back the seven mountain mandates. You ever heard Glenn Beck talk about that in his program or this comes from the Apostolic Reformation? That they're going to they're Christianize the entire world and government and law and all these other things. And, and then, then it will be a utopia. That and, 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 and along with that will come revival. Revival. When you hear Christians talk about a coming revival, the only revival I know in Scripture that's coming is the revival that happens in the first three and a half years of the tribulation under the, under the 144,000. The church ends in apostasy with a small remnant, Philadelphia remnant and Smyrna remnant, and the majority of the church is apostate. That's what Scripture teaches. It doesn't teach the church has a revival. A church ends in a, a disaster except for the remnant. So when you hear this term, well, we just got to get back to God. Well, that's true. All those things are true. But the question is, how do you have the supernatural capabilities of eradicating evil? Because I don't have it. Only Messiah possesses that as God. Only he can eradicate evil. We fight against evil. We take our stands against evil, and that's fine. But it doesn't mean I'm, I'm, I'm going to get the culture Christianized. So let's let's make this plain and simple for us all. How is it possible that we could Christianize society? So America early on was Christianized. Why? Because 98% of the people living in America were Christians. It was just dominated by Christians. And that's 1776, not, not 2022. Okay? So to have a Christian society, you have to have Christians. Okay? So the problem is, we're not in the majority, we're in the minority. Doesn't mean we're not salt and light. Doesn't mean we don't stand up against evil. It doesn't mean that. It just means that the great commission, the job the church is to do, is not to Christianize the society. The job the Christian is supposed to do is the great commission, which is make disciples. Okay? Now, that means conversion, and that means discipleship. And as a result, that could Christianize a community. It could Christianize, uh, you know, a nation or whatever. But here's the thing: if you're not getting conversions, you're not going to Christianize the society. Christianizing the society is a result of conversions. So, if a bunch of people are not coming to faith in the Lord anymore, you're not going to see a Christian society. That's what they do wrongly by putting the cart before the horse. We're just going to go after and Christianize the society. You can't. You have to have a heart change. You can't have just a legal change. We're not going to allow that. It doesn't change the heart. So I'm telling you, this is a big deal. And it's ruining Christianity for what it's intended to do. So Daniel then squares this up and tells you, look, you've got to have these things gone from your society in order to have the kingdom. And if they would just read this, then they, this would explain all how wrong they are, and how to get on the right page with God. Let's take a look at it, because this is a big deal. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God, referring to Jerusalem, let me explain what's happening here. Daniel 
is at the tail end of the, um, the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile is supposed to be 70 years. It's like year 67, 68, somewhere in that neighborhood. So Daniel knows within a couple of years that Israel is going to be allowed to go back home. He mistakenly thinks that when the 70 years are up, that the kingdom actually will start. And that needs to be corrected because the kingdom will not start because God's going to say, no, several things must happen, Daniel. And so you're wrong in your time. And so what he's doing here is confessing the sins of his people. But this confession needs to happen in the future for the future Israel. So he's wrong on his application. He's right in his intent, but he's wrong in his application. Okay, so this is why Gabriel is going to be sent to him. So yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel. Now, interesting, interesting enough, Gabriel, we know, is an angel. Okay, And he's called a man. The reason he's called a man is when angels, the third class of Elohims, you've got cherub, seraph, and, Elohim, and angels, or messengers. He's a messenger angel. So... When they appear, they appear as young men. All angels are, are, are male. They're not female. And fortunately, even we can't get our own thing right. We got a female angel here. And I'm looking at this thing. And I say, well, they refuse to make male angels. So we just go with it. And, and it's, it's like, they will not make male angels for some reason. Why, why is they all, why they all they're, they're not female. They're not, all angels are male Okay, so anyway, they appear as men, young men, so probably around the age of 25 if they materialize and appear to human beings. That's what Gabriel is appearing as, a man. Okay, Gabriel's name (coughs) means the servant of the strong one of the strong God. So it's symbolizing, his name symbolizes the strength of God. And anyway, he goes, with whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me at the time of the evening offering. The evening offering is 3 p.m., okay? Uh, the morning offering would be at 9, and then, the 3, uh, then 3 p.m. for the second offering. Anyway, and he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you the skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Now, this is interesting. Uh, you get a little angelology here. How fast does an angel fly? Well, we have some type of clue here. Obviously, they're not God. God can appear anywhere he wants to at any point in time because he's omnipresent. But an angel takes time to come from heaven, and I don't know how far heaven is away, light years away, I don't know, to here. So he says, when the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. So when God, sorry, when Daniel started praying, God heard his prayer and, and dispatches an angel at the beginning of his prayer. The time it took is a certain period of time because it comes at the end of Daniel's prayers. So I don't know if Daniel's prayer was five minutes. I don't know if it's 10 minutes. I don't know if it's 15 minutes. But it shows you that's how fast an angel can fly within a time span that when Daniel begins, a command is issued and he can get there by the end of the prayer. So there's some time. Five minutes, two minutes, I don't know. But that's how fast angels fly. So if you're ever in Bible trivia and they ask you, well, use this passage and it will tell you. They're not, they're not, they're super fast, but they're not instantaneous, obviously. Anyway, notice it says it calls Daniel greatly beloved. That term is also used for John. You know why? Because John and Daniel are somehow linked together 
in the opening of the seals and closing them. Daniel is told to close the, the, the information, and John takes that information and opens them, and that's where you get the book of Revelation. The two are, are linked together. So that's why both Daniel and John are called the Beloveds. Anyway, therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And here we are. Here's where it goes. Seventy weeks. Uh, weeks should be translated sevens, uh, savuin. Um, and it means sevens. And, and so by biblical calculations, what he's talking about is you times 70 times seven, which gives you 490 prophetic years until the kingdom will dawn. Okay? There will be a gap between the 483rd year and the last seven years, which we call the tribulation. But basically, prophetic years run about 360 days. They're based on a lunar calendar. And this is how long it's going to be determined for your people, Israel, and for your holy city, Jerusalem, to be established as the capital of the world and Israel to be the head of the nations, not the tail. Now, notice who it's referring to. It is not referring to the church. It's referring to Israel. So these things must happen in Israel in order for the kingdom to be ushered in. So these ideas of New Apostolic Reformation, Dominionism, replacement theology are totally wrong because it's all about Israel accepting the Messiah. So you can't have the church becoming Israel because then you have God not making good on his word. He is referring to the people Israel and Jerusalem, not the United States or anything else like that has nothing to do with the church. The church has been removed before Daniel's 70th week starts. Furthermore, here are the things that need to happen before the kingdom is ushered in. First, to finish the transgression. Second, to make an end of sins. Third, to make reconciliation for iniquity. This all refers to Israel, okay? All refers to Israel. And then you'll notice those are three negatives that need to be eliminated, and then there'll be three positives. These three positives can only come if the first three negatives are, are done. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and, and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So the negative, the, the number one and number four go together and two and five go together, and three and six go together. This must happen in order for this to occur, okay? So they're connected, and I'll show you the connection, okay? So in order for the kingdom to come, this has to be accomplished. So let's then parse it out. What do we mean? Well, to finish the transgression, notice that even in your English, it's the transgression. That's how it's described in Hebrew. It's the transgression. It's, it's, it's ha-kala, okay? So, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a ha in Hebrew is the, the. And kala uh, is to bring completion, the rebellion. It's the rebellion, okay? And, and what is the number one transgression that Israel must stop in order for the kingdom to come? There's one thing. They must accept Christ. That's it. They must accept him. So here's the thing. You can tell all these kingdom now Christians that are trying to build the kingdom, look, dude, the kingdom's not coming until Israel is saved, until Israel gives up not believing in Messiah. 
So it's not coming until the issue is Israel. So that, that eliminates a lot of things that people are doing right now. Okay, so this transgression is gonna be finished. How? It's in the future. Zechariah points this out. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Okay, this is not uh, uh, actually physically seeing Jesus. Look on means to trust. It's a Hebrew idiom. They will trust in whom they pierced. What is they pierced? Well, they didn't actually nail Jesus to the cross, but the religious leaders as the, the leaders of Israel gave is, sorry, Messiah over to Pilate and had him crucified. Okay, That's what Zechariah is saying. So they're indirectly involved in the crucifixion of the Messiah. And all of us are indirectly involved because we all put him on the cross, right? It's not to single out Israel, it's to single out every one of us. But anyway, they will come to that realization. And then what happens? They will mourn as, for him as one mourns for an only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This is where repentance in, comes in. Godly sorrow produces repentance, okay? So they come to faith, they mourn for him, because of what they did, who they've rejected, that Messiah is their, Jesus the Messiah is the long-awaited Messiah they've been looking for, and they, they simply turned their eyes to it. And their confession will be Isaiah 53. We steamed him not. We steamed him stricken by God and, you know, and afflicted, right? They, see, they didn't see him correctly. So anyway, they will grieve, repent, and then they, Israel gets saved, okay? So that's one of the conditions for the kingdom. Israel must be saved, and why? To bring in everlasting righteousness. Again, this is a reference to the kingdom, and it refers to the kind of kingdom that will come, which is a kingdom of righteousness. No more abortion mills. No more sexual immorality. No more murdering. It's all over. It's done. It's holiness and righteousness. So to think that the kingdom could come without eliminating evil and wickedness is foolish. These things must be eliminated. And it's at the age of righteousness, which is a thousand years, and then that turns into eternity. Now, how is righteousness established? First of all, it's established by purging the world of evil and wickedness during the tribulation. That's what the tribulation's for, to purge out all the evil and wickedness, to kill, uh, basically, all unbelief. And literally, Messiah does this. He has to rid the world of any unbelief. So he does, and he literally kills them. Now, once he's on the throne, on David's throne in the Messianic age, he rules with a rod of iron. Now, a shepherd would hold two staffs, the crook one and then a rod. And the rod, obviously, is to beat away enemies and make sure things don't get out of hand with enemies, okay? The shepherd's crook is for the sheep. The rod is for enemies. Now, how is it that he uses a rod, not made out of wood, but of iron? Because iron smashes, iron puts down. What's happening during the kingdom age? I'll tell you. The reason there is a kingdom of righteousness is because if anybody fools around in the kingdom and decides to do their own thing and monkey around, not obey the Messiah, not do anything, and they could be anywhere on this planet, Messiah personally puts them down, personally. Now, we've seen things like that in Israel's history, you know, in, in the theocracy of Israel, when people would come up against Moses like, like Miriam, 
And she starts speaking against Moses, and what did he do? Boom, leprosy. It was like instantaneously, he put, uh, uh, God would put him down. So the kingdom is like that. So let's say somebody wants to monkey around in Alaska, and they're, they're in Alaska, or they're, say, they're in Africa, they're in Buenos Aires, who knows where they're at on the, on, on the planet. And they decide, you know what, I'm going to go out and commit a sin today. The minute they step out and try to do that, boom, put down. It's not allowed. He prevents any unrighteousness. Now, the unrighteousness in their heart stays in them, and they will rebel at the end, but he is not allowing any monkey business. It's, it's a different rule. It's, it's not like what you and I are used to. We watch people sin and get away with it right now because their judgment comes at the end. Their judgment in the kingdom, instantaneously. And therefore, you can have a righteous kingdom. So can you imagine these Christians who think they're gonna build the kingdom, how are they gonna put down evil? How are they gonna eradicate it? They don't have the power to do it. You have to be God in order to do something like that, right? You have to be omnipotent to hold down evil, right? Let's continue on. The second thing that needs to happen, which corresponds to um, the fifth thing, is to make an end of sins. Now, we dealt with the one transgression. Now we're dealing with sins, plural. This is, has to do with the Hebrew word, katham. Uh, it means to seal up the sin for Israel, to end it for Israel. So their sins are removed finally. Not only does this imply forgiveness, it means that Israel won't sin. Now, what do you mean by that? This is different than what we're used to. The prophets notice uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Romans, all predict that Israel will be saved, but all predict that Israel will not sin during the Messianic age. It'll be the Gentiles who sin. God actually keeps them from sinning. Okay, This is the promise he has made with Israel, that one day when you're regenerated, you will not disobey me ever again. So the disobedience that happens in the Messianic age is Gentiles, not Israel, okay? And, and so this is a promise. So Ezekiel 37, to give you an example of this, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. So notice you have, just, you have not just simply cleansing from sin, you have the stopping of transgressions in Israel. It stops. Finally, the rebellious, stiff-necked nation of Israel finally stops sinning against the Lord. Finally. And that's what the prophets predicted, Right? And they shall be my people, a me, and I will be their God. And that's when they will have full fellowship with the Messiah. And that's how this is supposed to work. Okay? So uh, let's bring it to modern day. Let's, let's, let's talk about these people who think they can bring in the kingdom. In order to end all evil in this world, how are you going to do that without the power of God? How are you going to do that? So, for instance, look at this. You saw it on the prophecy update, but Netanyahu is saying, look, man, I'll do what I have to do to protect Israel, even if it upsets the Biden administration, who is, is backing up, you know, Iran. We're not going to stand for that. And if we have to turn against America to save our necks, we will. And good for, Biden, uh, good for uh, Netanyahu. Uh, but what's the point? You can't have a kingdom when 
Muslims want to eliminate Israel. That can't exist in the kingdom. It won't exist. So one of the things these Christians that want to bring in the kingdom don't understand, go deal with Islam and get them off of Israel's back. Try that one on for size because you ain't going to stop that. Only Jesus will stop it. How about this one? Even the Washington Post, as liberal and leftist as the Washington Post comes out, they come out and say COVID is now a pandemic of the vaccinated. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Can you believe it? Even the Washington Post admits it. So what's happening? 58% of coronavirus deaths in August were people who were vaccinated or boosted. In regard to uh, bi uh, bivalent vaccines, only 24% of the 121,000 patients who tested positive were unvaccinated. 72% were tested positive, had received between two and four of the original vaccines, and 5% took the new Omicron version. In order to have the kingdom, you have to have perfect health. Because perfect health is promised in the kingdom. How are you going to have perfect health when you got people that want to kill us with vaccines? You see what I'm saying? How are we going to overturn medical tyranny. I, I don't know where to start. I mean, I, 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 I can not do it for me and my family, but then how do I stop these creeps? I don't have that kind of power. Well, we're going to vote people in. Yeah, good luck on that one. Good luck, because when they get in power, all they want to do is satisfy Pfizer and whoever is selling the drugs, okay? So again, you can't have this in the kingdom. You can't have this in the kingdom either. Now, here's the funny thing. The left using Colorado shootings to silence LGBT critics, okay? So again, make sure you understand, when I come against the LGBT movement, I'm coming against the agenda. I'm not targeting people caught in that deadly destructive lifestyle. We have Philip Lee in our church, and we direct people to get help through his ministry of his way out. We want people to get out of this lifestyle because it's destructive. But I'm talking about the agenda. The agenda is what's evil and who's perpetrating this. And what they're trying to say is, you and I are causing the death of the LGBT community and the transgender community by what we say, since we are against it, okay? That we are the ones causing the shootings and the bombings, and, and so we're, we're indirectly responsible for people's death, is what they're saying. If we would just shut up, everything would be fine, they say. But guess what? We did not encourage Anderson Lee Aldrich to do what he did. In fact, he wasn't a Christian. In fact, he's not a conservative. Guess what he is? He's a non-binary that wants to be called they, them, and their, and his, whatever. And instead of calling him Mr. Anderson, he wants the court to call him Mix Anderson. So how is a Christian responsible for, to encourage a non-binary guy to go shoot up Colorado? Doesn't exist, does it? They want to pin the tail on the donkey, and I'm not going to be the donkey. How about this? Lefty narratives crumbling everywhere. New York gay bar attacker is a gay man. See, they said, you Christians are committing violence. This is what you encourage, and this is why someone's taking it out on a gay bar. The dude was gay. Come on. You see what they want to do? They want to demonize us. That can't happen in the kingdom because believers are protected in the kingdom. 
not harassed and harangued by what the people do here. There is no persecution in the kingdom, by the way. How are the Christians going to do that who think they're going to build the kingdom? How are you going to stop persecution, Christian? You can't. It takes the power of God. Look at this. This is a good article from Harbinger's Daily. Why do so many Christians deny the deadly intent behind the globalist agenda? What are they not seeing? What are your friends who are Christians not seeing? Are they not seeing the the catastrophic shortages of food that are coming in 2023? Are they not seeing the diesel fuel shortages? Are they not seeing the record inflation? Are they not seeing threats of World War III? Are they not seeing the technology that exists for transhumanism and the mark of the beast system? Are they not seeing that? Do they not see the push for a one world government? And do they not see the depopulation agenda of the globalists? You tell me. The article is asking, why are so many Christians denying the reality in which they live in? Why is that? Is it because they're afraid? Maybe. But I think it comes down to theology. They don't know eschatology. They don't know prophecy, and they don't understand the kingdom properly. They really believe, some of them believe they're in the kingdom now. If this is the kingdom, I'm sorely disappointed. Who in the world thinks they're in the kingdom right now? That's insane. But see, it's the theology that they're being taught that makes them clueless. If they think they're in the kingdom or they're going to build the kingdom, they're not afraid of this because we're just going to overcome it. You're crazy if you think like it because you don't understand the kingdom. Now, look at this last thing, the depopulation agenda. Uh, some, Some information leaked out of the World Economic Forum just recently. I don't know if you saw it. But they talk about this all the time. They say, Brandon, you're a conspiracy nut. I'm not. It's not a conspiracy. It's a spoiler alert. They're telling you what they're going to do. Look at these guys. Got caught on camera laughing about depopulation. In the session we just attended here at the Economic Forum, I think there was a sense of relief, actually, in your frankness. Um, you brought up some issues that, that others are reluctant to bring up. That's my trouble. Always. <laughs> All the religious groups are against me because I'm talking about population. They want more souls. I want less on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> My side is splitting. That's so funny. The religions want more souls, and we want to get rid of people. <laughs> Dude, it's like, like, a, like a movie, a Snidely Whiplash movie, or like a James Bond movie. <laughs> We're going to eliminate and have total domination. Yeah, that's how they think. It's like a movie laughing about eliminating humans. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's true. They want to eliminate you. They know they have a problem. They don't want to go to 8 billion or 9 billion humans, so we, they're working hard to eliminate that. Huh. And they're help, we being helped with this guy. If you go Harari. back to the middle of the 20th century, and it doesn't matter if you're in the United States with Roosevelt or if you're in Germany with Hitler or if you're in, in, in the USSR with Stalin, and you think about building the future, then your building materials are those millions of people who are working hard in the factories, in the farms, the soldiers in the... You need them. You don't have any kind of future without them. Hmm. Um, and now fast forward to, to the early 21st century when we just don't need the vast majority of the population. Because... Because uh, the, the future is about developing more and more sophisticated technology, like, again, artificial intelligence, bioengineering, 
most people don't contribute anything to that except perhaps for their data. And whatever people are still doing, which is useful, these technologies increasingly will make redundant and will make it possible to, to replace the, the people. Oh, thank you. So the solution is because we're entering a technology society, we don't need all these people. So what are we going to do with them, Harari? Oh, we want to talk about that. Because that's why we promote LGBT. That's why we promote abortion. That's why we promote euthanasia. This is why we promote doctor-assisted suicide. And this is why we're giving you the vaccine. We can't allow you to keep populating the planet and obeying God in the dominion mandate. We have to stop that. Okay, so these Christians that want to build the kingdom, how are you going to stop them doing that? I stand up to them, but they keep rolling. I, 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 I fight the good fight, but they keep rolling. In fact, they're getting more vicious. How about the younger generation? We've got a major problem on our hands. You realize that in America, don't you? It's not just the millennials, it's Gen Z too. Good article. Gen Z has a religion they want to impose and Christianity stands in their way. Yeah. Why do you see so much militants among Gen Z and the millennials who simply will not allow you to have your opinion and voice that opinion? In fact, when you do, they want to hurt you. Why are they like that? Because they have no neutrality. It's either their way or the highway, this younger generation. That's how it is with them. And they have their religion, whether you call it wokeism or humanism or whatever it might be, and that and Christianity stands in their way. Because we tell them, you're wrong. And so they go crazy. So the kingdom can't happen when you have people who believe things like this. So, if I ever have to have an abortion, you bet I'm going to have a party. I'm going to have like cupcakes with like aborted fetuses drawn on them, lots of snacks, lots. I'm going to come up with some sort of cocktail and call it the aborted fetus. And be in all of my friends who are just going to hang out, eat a bunch of yummy dead fetus themed food, get drunk, and have a great old time. You can't have the kingdom with that kind of person. You can't. She is wanting to have a party with her buddies, a drinking party, where they have cupcakes with fetuses on them, and they eat them, and they call their drinks whatever fetus names, and, and, and celebrate murdering babies with cupcakes. That can't happen in the kingdom. So what are they going to do about that? You get what I'm saying? Have you noticed, not only is that just the, the ultimate in, in hitting the sacred of wanting to kill babies and then mutilate them and, and dine on them, that's a, that's a whole new level of evil we're seeing, okay? But how about this? Look at the way she looks. Okay? Now, what, I'm, I'm not going after, well, she's beautiful or ugly. I'm not saying that. She is a, a natural she is marring the image of God in her, okay? Every time I see someone involved in the occult or demon-influenced, demon-oppressed, or whatever it might be, they look like that. 
They look disheveled. They look unnatural. They have piercings everywhere. Their hair is blue. And, and, and they just look out of their minds. Why is that related to demons? Because demons, when they get their hooks on somebody, want to mar the image of God of that person, and they will start making themselves look ugly. They will, do, they will transform themselves into the, the beauty that they have into some ugly-looking ghoul. Why is that? That's what happened to the demoniac at the Gadarenes who is running around living in the tombs dressing uh, all disheveled like a homeless person. And why? Because he was out of his mind. He was demonically influenced. When you see people like this, it's demonic to watch them dress and, and portray themselves in this fashion. It is not natural, if that makes sense. So I'm not talking about beauty. I'm not talking about good looks. I'm talking about disheveled demon influence. And that's a picture of disheveled. You can't have that in the kingdom. It's not allowed. <clears throat> so we may, they're going to make an end of sin for Israel. All sins are removed finally. Why? So, so that, that vision and prophecy can be sealed up. Now, what does this mean to be sealed up? It's a Hebrew word, kafam, okay? And it means to bring to an end. And what is vision and prophecy? Vision is not seeing a vision per se. In this context, vision has to do with oral prophecy, like Elijah or Elisha would do. They would give an oral prophecy, but it wouldn't be put in Scripture, okay? So that's what the prophets did. They'd have oral prophecy. And then when it went into Scripture, that's where you get the term prophecy. So it's talking about oral and written prophecy. Now, what's the big deal about this? Why is this important? Because all of the, prophet, the prophecies about the kingdom and about Israel must be completed, okay? Because if it's not, then God is a liar, and we know he's not a liar, that he will make good on these promises. Now, what's the big deal? Well, let me bring in the NAR. Let me bring in dominion theology. Let me bring in kingdom now. They are saying that God doesn't have to make good on his prophecies to Israel because they think they're the new Israel, and hence, they, in effect, make God a liar. This is very satanic. But all for, as you can see, Daniel is saying all of this needs to happen and so that all the prophecies can be fulfilled in the culmination of Israel being saved, the second coming, and the messianic kingdom. It must happen for God to fulfill his word. And I wish people would read this and understand that's why Israel is important. If you can't trust God on his promises to Israel, how can you trust his promises to you? You see what I'm saying? It goes hand in hand. Now he goes to make, and now he says another thing that must happen. There must be a reconciliation for iniquity in order for the, uh, the anointing of the most holy. The anointing of the most holy is the, is the uh, sorry, the, the messianic temple. But let's talk about this reconciliation. This is the, the capstone of all of this. In order to have forgiveness for the transgression, in order to have forgiveness of sin, a reconciliation must happen, okay? So this is the big clincher. Iniquity in the text is avon, and it means the sin act. So any sin that we do against God is, in Hebrew, avon. 
So there needs to be a reconciliation for avon, sin. And this reconciliation is kafar in, in Hebrew. And kafar is derived, or it's similar to the same word kipper in Hebrew. And both terms mean atonement needs to be made. So with this, what this is referring to is there needs to be an atonement made, not just with bulls and goats and things of that nature, but an atonement that takes care of all of sin and takes the sin away. The blood of bulls and goats only covers the sin until the final atonement can be made. So this implies Messiah's atonement on the cross, obviously. And with Messiah's atonement, it will satisfy and take away the sin of the, the transgression and the sins of Israel. But it is not applied until Israel believes. Just the same as you and I. The atonement is not applied to you until you and I believe. And then it gets applied. And your sins are forgiven. Okay? That's how it works. So this needs to happen this application of this atonement from the Messiah must happen to Israel before the kingdom starts. So again, you're still dealing with Israel. So let's talk about the atonement. Yom Kippur. It's the same word, uh, similar word, I should say, to kafir. It means atone. Okay? So Israel would have its day of atonement. It's a part of the fall feasts. Okay, so you would have Feast of Trumpets, uh, Rosh Hashanah, then you would have Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and then you would have Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, um, in the fall, okay? Tabernacles is a kingdom feast. In order to have the kingdom, what comes before the kingdom? Yom Kippur, right? So you follow the order in the fall feast. You, you can't put the, 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 the tabernacle, Feast of Tabernacles, before Yom Kippur. Now, did, did Israel make this mistake? They did. Do you know what happened? Most people are not picking up on this because you've got to have the Hebrew background of the feast to understand this. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, right? people call that the triumphal entry, right? Palm Sunday, we call it. Why do they call it Palm Sunday? Because they're waving palms. But it's not, that's not the feast. Where you wave palms is the Feast of Tabernacles. He was entering into the Feast of Passover. So a mistake was made on Passover with the people of Israel trying to jump Passover, jump atonement to get to the kingdom. And so they're waving kingdom branches. That's why they wave the palms. Right person, there is the king, but wrong application. Because the first coming is about the atonement, Passover, and then the application of the atonement is Yom Kippur in order to get to the kingdom. They were out of order. And that's why when we celebrate Palm Sunday, it's about them mis misunderstanding the feasts that Passover needed to happen. Okay, Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement would come. Everybody in Israel must fast for 24 hours, okay? So then they would, they would have sacrifices, obviously, of bulls. They have seven sheep, goats, rams, so forth, okay? But the, the, the issue that you want to focus in on is the two goats. 
So they would bring the two goats out, and then they would also bring two um, strings or whatever you want to call them, like a, the size of a, a scarf of dyed scarlet wool, okay? Of re- it was scarlet to represent sin, okay? Represent blood as well. So they'd bring them out and the two goats. And where they got this tradition is they, they used Isaiah 1.18 to use this tradition, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And they use this for understanding the atonement, that that under the atonement, then your sins uh, will be turned whiter in snow or white like wool. So they were right in their understanding of atonement, okay? So anyway, they did this tradition, and they would... um, not roll dice, it's not dice. Um, lots, they rolled lots. Why am I thinking dice? Um, they rolled li- uh, dice. Lots, I said lice. They rolled lice. Lots. And the lot would fall in, between the two goats. One goat would be sacrificed to Yahweh, a blood offering, a whole burnt offering. Okay, that's referring to the sacrifice. And then the other one would be the goat given to Azazel. Okay. And, and so the lots would fall, and, and that's how they went with that, okay? So when the, the lot fell on the one goat, the Azazel goat, um, they tied the red ribbon around his horns, and then they took the other ribbon from the other goat and hung it on the doorposts of the temple, okay? So then what they would do with this other goat uh, called the Azazel goat is the high priest would then put his hands on the goat's head and confer all the sins of Israel upon that goat. And that goat would be the carrier of the burden of all of the Israel's sins for that last year, okay? It was a year-to-year practice. You had to do it every year. And so that goat held the sins of all of Israel on him. He carried the burden, okay? And he is not to be sacrificed, per se. He is to be driven out into the wilderness, Okay, so both goats represent the Messiah, okay? So anyway, let's follow through on this. This term, Azazel, in your, your, some of your Bibles, it would be a, a lowercase term, but we now know that the sent goat, which is termed Azazel, actually Azazel is a proper name, and we understand this from Second Temple literature, uh, we understand this from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls explained Azazel, uh, what the Jewish thought was about him, and they explained, um, uh, well, uh, other Jewish traditions explained the background on this guy. Apparently, Azazel is one of the ringleaders, obviously under the, 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 the command of Satan, but one of the ringleaders with another guy, fallen angel, that convinced 200 watcher angels on Mount Hermon to do Genesis 6, which means to cohabitate with women and produce Nephilim giants, right? And you had the whole genetic structure being messed up, right, at that point in time. Well, he is one of their leaders, Azazel, okay? Now, according to Second Temple tradition, oral tradition from the, the Jews, Again, we're not saying that this is like golden, like on par with scripture, but it is cultural background. It is historical information, and it's, you need to know this and, and p- to understand Leviticus 16 a little bit better. 
Azazel, according to tradition, um, was responsible for revealing to men the art of warfare. He gave the ideas of how to go to war. He told them how to make swords, knives, shields, and coats of mail when they go to war. Then he also corrupted women by teaching them the art of deception or seduction. And he taught them by or ornamenting their body, dyeing the hair, and painting the face and the eyebrows. Now, this is not an indictment to you, ladies, today. This is what happened in Genesis 6, and it was for the art of seducing. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, wearing makeup or anything is the art of seducing. It's not. But that's what he was teaching the women is how to seduce men, okay? The third thing he taught is he revealed the occult secrets of heaven to human beings. And it started the occult uh, in Genesis Six. So you had a lot, of go lot going on. You had genetics, you had the exasperation of sin with, uh, among humans because of this revealed information. And that was what, what led to the, the flood and God ending it. Um, and when it says Noah was perfect in his generations, it means his genetic code was perfect. He was fully human. And the people on board were fully human. It had gotten so bad, not everybody was fully human. They were part angel, part human, part animal, part angel. It was weird. A lot of things got messed up, and so God ends it with the flood. Okay, so what happens to Azazel? Well, Jude in 1 Peter remarked that these angels that did this, these 200 angels that did this, are now confined in Tartarus, in the center of the earth. It's called the Abuso, or the bottomless pit. And they will be there until the great white throne judgment. Second Temple literature says that Azazel was punished to be confined to the Judean desert, okay? The desert, the wilderness area. And he is locked up there, so to speak, uh, under the rocks, it says, in Second Temple literature. Okay, this is why the Transjordanian area next to Israel is viewed as extremely wicked, okay? Um, we were crossing where the Dead Sea was, and right across we were seeing Mount Nebo, in which Moses saw over the promised land. Moses is buried by God in Mount Nebo, but there's a dispute over Moses' body. Remember that? With Satan wanting his body, or at least protesting that Moses shouldn't be buried there, and Moses shouldn't be allowed to enter Abraham's bosom. It's right there where that area is, is called the Valley of the Travelers, and that's what the ancient world thought that the entrance into the underworld was in the Transjordan area, all the way up to Basham, okay? So it's a very wicked area. Mount Hermon is in part of Basham. So anyway, this is a real deal thing because guess what happened with the Lord? Where did he go before he starts his ministry? He went into the wilderness, the Judean wilderness. And what happened there? Satan tries to tempt him. You remember that? This is not an accident. He goes into the wilderness because that's where evil is at. That's where demons are at. That's where uh, fallen angels are at. This is where the, 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 the realm of the dead, the entrance to the realm of the dead is in that area. So as Adam failed in the garden, when he had all abundance and the presence of God, Messiah, the second Adam, goes on their territory and defeats them on their territory in the wilderness. Okay? The wilderness represents 
sin. The wilderness represents how life is not supposed to be. Life was created to be the garden experience. When you and I walk in the cool of the day with the Lord in a well-watered paradise with God's presence. Right? We're going to get that back. But the wilderness represents how the world shouldn't be. It represents sin. It represents the fall. It represents what it's not to be. Okay? And this has become a haunt for demons and every foul spirit. Okay. So, the reason the goat is sent to Azazel, where Azazel is confined in the wilderness, and this is where the traveler, the valley of the travelers is, and all the evil, is because God is taking sin and putting it where it belongs. Out of the garden. Out of the camp. See, what happened with Israel, once the Garden of Eden was lost after the, 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 uh, the, not only the fall of man, but the flood, there's no more Garden of Eden anymore, right? God doesn't dwell until he starts dwelling with the nation of Israel in the Exodus. Ah. So now instead of a garden, the garden has become the camp. And Yahweh dwells within the camp of Israel. Therefore, the goat represents sending sin out of the camp, out into the wilderness. Because in the camp is where Yahweh is, and his people are there. And we cannot have sin in the camp. This is why New Jerusalem, no sin will defile New Jerusalem because it's outside of the camp. To be in New Jerusalem is to be in the camp with God. Okay. So follow me on this. It's not a sacrifice to Azazel. It's putting sin where it belongs. So they would take the Azazel goat out, and they would lead him out eastward from Jerusalem to the Judean desert. Okay, And, and they would have stations along the way. There were actually 10 stations. It was about 12 miles long. And uh, these stations are important. I'll explain what the stations are for. But they would pass these stations as they took the, the gazelle goat out. Okay. Once they got to the end of the 12 miles, they didn't want the goat returning. Because the scripture says, just let him go out in the wilderness and he'll die, you know, of no water or whatever. The Jews said, no, no, this guy can come back. And we don't want the sins of the nations coming back. So you know what they did? They found the cliff and they'd throw this guy off, off the cliff and kill him. Just to make sure that he doesn't come back. So that became the tradition. By the way, archaeologists have basically uncovered this place in the Judean desert about 12 miles east of Jerusalem. In the Judean desert. It's like if you go out to the Dead Sea and you go in there, it's directly out on that road that travels out there from Jerusalem. And anyway, this is where they would throw the Zell goat off the cliff and they'd basically kill him. Okay? So here's an interesting thing that happened. Once they threw him off, the goat was dead, the priest that threw him off would turn around and say, Nashem, or it is finished. And he would yell that to the next command post, and the next command post would hear him. He would turn around, it is finished. And then the next command post would hear it, and he would say, it is finished. And it would continue to go down the line. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. All the way to the temple precincts. 
until they heard it in the temple precincts, which means the atonement had been made. It is finished now. God, and how did they know if God accepted the Azel goat? Here's what would happen. Remember that scarlet thread on the temple door? It would turn white once the goat was dead. And God showing his approval of their Yom Kippur. Now hold on to that thought. Messiah is crucified in possibly these two locations. We went to both locations in Israel. Um, one is, they're both still on Mount Moriah. One is to the west and one is to the very north. but still on Mount Moriah. Now, notice this is first century Israel. This is what it looked like. Notice where Jesus is crucified. In the city? Nope. He's outside the walls of the city, which means he's outside of the camp, just like the Azazel goat, right? He's outside of the camp of Israel, because you, you, you can't have sin inside the camp. So all the sin of Israel and the world has been laid upon Jesus as he bears the sin like the Azazel goat does, Azazel goat does, and he's bearing it outside of the camp. And what did he say? Well, here's a picture of you know, what it would look like outside the camp, outside of Jerusalem. What do you say at the cross? It's finished. He's using Yom Kippur language, right? And really, it would, it would have been, in Hebrew, nishlam, nishlam. And everybody that heard that knows that nishlam is used for it is finished. And the Greek translates it tetelestai, but it's the same word. It means it's finished. But there's something very unique about the Hebrew word, nishlam. So um, it, it is finished. If you take off the, the prefix uh, with the N and I, um, and you read Hebrew backwards, it's you have the nun, you have the yod. And see that word, the, the, the letter in Hebrew that looks like a W? That's a shem. It's pronounced sh, and then you have that. It looks like a camel leg. That's lamed, and then you have the other p- uh, p- thing, and it, it's a meme. It's a, it's the letter M in Hebrew. Okay, so you have sh l m, sh l m, sh l m, sh l m. What does that sound like? Shalom. Within the Hebrew word nishlam, it is finished. Shalom is undergirding it in the Hebrew, which means. Once Messiah says it's finished, God can now offer shalom to anybody who wants it. Isn't that amazing? It's all in the Hebrew word, nishlam. It's finished. But notice this. This is from the Jewish writings, the Babylonian Talmud, Rosh Hashanah 31b. It's out of the Sosino. This is one of their commentaries. Look what it says. And it has further been taught for 40 years before the destruction of the temple. When was the temple destroyed? 70 AD. The thread of the scarlet never turned white, but it remained red. Now wait, let's do some math. Easy math. Destruction of the temple, 70 AD, and it says for 40 years. So 70 minus 40 gives you what? 30 AD. That's exactly the year Christ is crucified in 30 AD. So once the fulfillment of all the shadows was done by the Messiah. The official atonement has been made by the Messiah. 
the scarlet never turns white again and never has. Now, what do you, what, what's the messaging from God to Israel? I am no longer accepting the goat of Azazel to carry your sins anymore because my son has bore the sins and you must accept his atonement for your sins. Otherwise, your sins stay as scarlet. That's the messaging to Israel. And that's when the, the miraculous stopped happening. That's amazing. If you don't see that as, as, as a Jewish person, as a sign that God's trying to say something to you, I don't know what else. Crazy, huh? But that's, isn't that amazing that happened? So the atonement has to be made and it has to be applied to Israel for what? To anoint the most holy. The most holy is the, ta- the temple, the, the temple that will be in the, uh, the Messianic age. Now, this unfortunately is a mistake by Israel right now. They are wanting to build a third temple, okay? And this is like Photoshop, but this is where they want to put the temple on the Temple Mount. They want to put it north of the Dome of the Rock, and the Dome of the Rock says God has no sun on it, by the way. It's very blasphemous. So anyway, they want to put the temple right there, and they're negotiating with this, and a lot of Muslims in control of the Temple Mount are somewhat agreeing to this. So we'll see how things develop. But this is the outlay of what they want to do. Now, when I took the group to Israel, we, we took them to the old city, and right there is the, the, uh, um, the Temple Mount uh, Institute, and they are responsible for creating all the articles of this new temple that they're going to build. And I showed them right in front of it, in front of the synagogue there, is the menorah that will be used for the tribulation temple that Antichrist will desecrate. It's right there on display. We all saw it in person. There it is. That's what it looks like. So if you want to know what the inside of the tribulation temple looks like, it'll have that in it. But that is not sanctioned by God. Because according to Isaiah 66, them creating their own temple without God's sanction is forbidden. So the third temple is forbidden, which will be desecrated by the Antichrist. Because why? Here's what Scripture says. Zechariah 6. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Obviously the Messiah. But I heard those words before by somebody. Ecce homo. In Latin. Someone else said, Ecce homo. I find no fault in the man. Who was that? Pilate. Pilate said three times... I find nothing wrong with him. He's the innocent lamb. He is to be sacrificed. In essence, because Israel wouldn't say it. So Pilate says it. But Pilate doesn't even know he's quoting Zechariah 6. Ecce homo. Look. Behold the man. Right? The branch. The Messiah. He told Israel, here's your Messiah. But what does it say? From his place he shall branch out. And he, he alone shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, He shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. What is the council of peace between them both? And the fact that Messiah is in the order of Melchizedek. And that means he can be king and priest at the same time. Those offices were split with the Levitical priests. Hence, the Messianic temple will be built by Messiah. And there's what it looks like according to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 40, 
40 through 48. And it will not be the Ark of the Covenant inside. It will be Jesus inside the Holy of Holies, sitting on David's throne, ruling the world from Jerusalem. Okay, that's how, this is what the Messianic kingdom looks like. All of that to say, this can't happen unless atonement has been made for Israel. So it's waiting to be applied. Hence, you cannot have the kingdom because it all rests on Israel's reception. Now, application. How do we bring it down to ourselves? Well, again, it starts with the principle. The bad must end in order for the good to begin. That's what Daniel's trying to say in a nutshell. You've got to get rid of sin, iniquity, all this other junk going on in in Israel's life before the good begins. Okay, how do we apply that? The good for us is one day, yes, we will be in the kingdom, and the good for us is we will be rewarded in that kingdom, and therefore, our job here is to eliminate the bad that holds us back from fulfilling God's mission for us, from fulfilling the talents that God has given us, the time he has given us, so that we can be rewarded for that period of time. It is also the allowance of us to live the abundant life, which gives us freedom. Spirituality, uh, uh, spiritual maturity, becoming more like Christ gives you freedom. It gives you the abundant life. So the good for us is a little bit different but we end up in the same place. But you can experience the good now through the abundant life. Okay, what is the condition for the abundant life? Well, it's the same. As a believer, you must let go of the transgressions and the sin that holds you back. You cannot move forward unless you deal with the issues. Now, as an example, Israel is spiritually stuck, aren't they? I felt so bad watching Israel on um, the Western Wall. We was there at uh, Sabbath, and they're rushing all, they, they, they got their clothes on uh, uh, with the, the Hasidic clothes, I don't know, like their 1800s Europe or something like that with the black and everything and the curls. And they're running to the Western Wall with the, their garb on, big fur hats, all this kind of junk. Nothing that God prescribed, by the way. Don't get me wrong, I love Israel, I'm pro-Israel, but the, 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 the religion of Israel is, is this leading them down the wrong path. Rushing to the Western Wall to do their prayers for Sabbath, and, and you know, a lot of them are reading Lamentations, and they're doing their uh, shuckling, and when they do this, that's called shuckling, is to you know, be, be physical with their prayer. And, and I, I feel so bad for them because I'm looking down, and it's like, that's holding you back. You think, according to the Apostle Paul, not Brandon, the Apostle Paul says, Israel tries to achieve their righteousness through works. That's what he says in Romans. And I'm watching that happen right in front of my eyes. That's what's holding you back, Israel. You try to obtain your own righteousness when the righteousness from the Messiah must be given to you to make you clean. It holds them back. What's holding you back? Look at the application. First of all, let's ask this question. What are we afraid of? What are you afraid of losing in order to go forward? What is Israel afraid of? You see what I'm saying? This is, this, the principle is easy to understand, but it's hard to apply because in order to go to the good, you must give up the bad. What are you afraid of losing? 
You see what I'm saying? You might lose money. You might lose status. You might lose reputation. All those things, okay? Israel is afraid to give up that. See, one of the problems with Israel, and again, I'm not knocking them. I'm using them as an example because this is about them, is they will not give up the pride that they think they can attain, uh, or, uh, sorry, the pride they think that they have by attaining their own salvation. It causes a great amount of pride in them that if they do check boxes, that they made it. They don't want to leave that system. That's a, that's a system even Gentiles play the game in. A checkbox. I'm spiritual, so I, I, I did this, and I did that, and I did this. And it's a checkbox of righteousness. But that righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. You have to be perfect. And that's what they don't want to lose because it gives them a sense of security. Why are we afraid of letting go? Because you're going to have to give up something. Israel will have to give up their rabbis. I mean, you know, in Israel, you walk around, and you see these pictures of rabbis everywhere. Like they had this one guy, this rabbi dude, and they had him posted on like every back of the sign, everywhere I went in Israel. And, and I, I asked the, the tour guide, I said, who is this guy? Oh, he's a, a rabbi they think is the Messiah. I said, okay, but he's dead. How can he be the Messiah if he's dead? Something's not jiving. Because if you're going to be the Messiah, you have to resurrect According to the sign of Jonah, there has to be a resurrection. When's this guy going to resurrect? In the past three days, by the way. So the guy's not the Messiah. He proves he's not the Messiah. And I'm like, what, is, what are they not seeing about this? And again, why? They're holding on to what the rabbis teach them. So again, they're not letting go of this, right? What are we afraid of doing? Well, see, in order to go to the abundant life, you have to do stuff. It's not automatic. You have to be disciplined. You have to, you have to be challenged in your spirituality to grow. You have to do certain things in order to grow. And that means eliminating things in your life that prevent you from growing. How about this? People are afraid to confront. People are afraid of letting go of a relationship that's toxic. People are afraid of, well, if I do this and I confront them with the truth, I'm going to lose that relationship. Yeah, that's how it works. That's how we go to spiritual maturity. You have to do the hard things. At some point, Israel, look, here's, here's the story on Israel. Israel will not confront the rabbis. They won't. They have a blind submission to authority. Okay? They do. And they will not do anything that the rabbi doesn't tell them to do. Okay? What's it going to take for, for Israel to be broken from this blind obedience to Rabbis, you know what it's going to take? The return of Elijah in the tribulation, the possible return of Moses, the 144,000, those, those key players, Elijah, Moses, and, and the 144,000 Jewish apostle Pauls will be the ones who break the bond between Israel and the rabbis. That's who's going to break it. It, it, it's so strong, it's taking Moses and Elijah to come back. That's how strong the bond is between the rabbis and the people who follow them. That's strong. Wow. And what, what, what does it take? It takes the tribulation to break Israel's power. 
the power that's discussed in Daniel chapter 12. It says that, that the tribulation is for the break the power of Israel. The power is talking about pride. Israel has to be put flat on their back without any resources, almost eliminated physically by the Antichrist to eventually say, Hosanna, and give the Messianic greeting. Because Jesus told them, unless you give me the Messianic greeting, I'm not coming. The Messianic greeting is Hosanna. It must be said by Israel, but it can only be said by a saved Israel. But what does it take them to get to say Hosanna? I'm putting you flat on your back. I'll almost eliminate you in order for you to break, to advance in your spirituality. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be the kind of Christian that it takes God breaking me on my back to get me to wake up, to get me to move forward. I would rather be the kind of Christian that says, okay, I see what's going on here. I need to give that up. I need to do this. I need to confront that. I need to do these things in order to experience the good. I'd rather be like that than like Israel. But unfortunately, we have to learn sometimes by being broke. I just pray you don't have to do that. If you do truly desire the good that God gives, you must eliminate the bad. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can learn from Daniel. We understand what happens for the kingdom and what Israel must do. And we understand for our own personal lives what must happen in us spiritually. If we're to become more like Christ, we have to give up the, these transgressions and sins that hold us back. Father, help us to be diligent in doing that. Give us the courage to be able to do that. Give us, give us the strength to be able to do that because we all want to be more like Christ. We want to experience the abundant life, and we want to be rewarded in your kingdom. Help us to do that, Father. And I pray if there's anyone here that hasn't come to faith, they would do so today, understanding the Messiah made the atonement for them, paid for their sins on a cross, offers forgiveness and salvation, shalom, was de uh, died and was buried and rose on the third day and gives everlasting life to anyone who will believe. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.